You're listening to a podcast from the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference. The seventh annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at NUI Galway in August 2017. The conference was generously supported by the College of Arts, Social Sciences and Celtic Studies at NUI Galway, the School of Humanities at NUI Galway, the Moore Institute at NUI Galway, the Disciplines of History and English at NUI Galway, the Women's History Association of Ireland and Marsh's Library. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with UCD's History Hub. There are now more than 180 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts or visit tudorstuartireland.com. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Professor Raymond Pierre Hilton from Virginia Union. His paper was entitled Women and Family in Ireland's Huguenot Refuge, Paradigms and Comparisons. Always a pleasure to be here. Glad to see you again. The Huguenot immigration from Ireland from 1662 to circa 1708 was primarily over religion, to be sure, but it was also about family. Further, it was about a subtle, a barely acknowledged, but nonetheless pervasive leadership role exercised by women of the French Calvinist dispersion, uh, a factor in probability influencing the nature and direction of the Huguenot exilic communities that sprang up in Dublin, Port Arlington, Cork, Waterford, Lisbon, and close to 20 uh, lesser population clusters. Uh, The paradigms for this are not that easy to find, the preeminent one for Ireland being that of Marie de la Rochefoucauld de Champagne. Her escape from her home in Saint-Onge, France, in July 1687 was, as revealed by her own account, riveting, well-planned and executed, and carried out almost entirely under her own initiatives, and certainly certainly without the help of her husband, who, uh, though she uh, uh, displays deep affection for him, is nonetheless depicted as being ineffective, vacillating, quite possibly an alcoholic, and who did not accompany her and her, their eldest son, Josias, on that journey. Uh, months earlier, the eldest daughter, Suzanne, who was 19 at the time, and all but one of the six younger children had similarly escaped by sea, ensconced in a narrow hold, seated on a cargo of salt, while the father, last of all, months later, made his way leisurely overland to the Netherlands. Upon his death two years later, Marie became uh, de jure head of her large family, as she had uh, likely been de facto for several years prior. She ultimately settled in Port Arlington, Ireland, where, doubtless under tutelage of this uh, formidable dowager, her son Josias, who had escaped with her, became borough sovereign and for years a highly influential force in local politics and governance. Now, such narrative uh, sources uh, as hers are very few and far between. For example, out of uh, uh, only 51 extant Huguenot escape narratives, very sparse when one considers over 200,000 Huguenot escapees at the time, uh, no more than eight have known to be written by women. Uh, Records are sparse and referenced in many cases only indirect and implicit. 
Therefore, Marie de la Champagne's story is of great interest and in many ways revealing. And her escape account uh, most probably serve as her reconnaissance affidavit, which was her passport for acceptance into the network of French Protestant communities uh, that quite literally sprang up throughout uh, Britain and Ireland in the wake of the 1680s refugee crisis. But it must be cautioned that as a noblewoman, whose very prosperous family took a special pains to preserve her account and memory, she is still definitely atypical, enough false sorts of providing a quintessential paradigm. It's necessary, therefore, to begin expanding on and venturing beyond Marie de la Champagne's uh, story and to identify basic factors in order to piece together a more coherent view of what impacted on that family life, how that family life impacted upon the larger picture, uh, what can be discerned, limbs, an image of remarkable resilience and cohesion, a prototypical example of a sundered and shattered community trying to rebuild itself in an alien environment in the wake of an international uh, humanitarian calamity. Uh, an understated true, truism fundamental to our understanding of the original aspirations of the Hugon, Irish Huguenot refuge is that most of the refugees had no desire to stay in Ireland or anywhere else other than France and refused to accept the finality of their exile. It was a matter of deep concern to the adult Huguenot family members, particularly the women, that the physical, spiritual, and cultural future of their families be preserved, and thus this extending even through unborn generations. This nurtured a salient belief prevalent in Ireland's French Protestant exile communities, and that is that of the phantom hope of the glorious return from exile to a re-sanctified and repentant France, a newly converted King Louis XIV, uh, freed from papal do papist domination. Uh, this went so far as taking on apocalyptic overtones, and even as folk faded that the first generation would ever see France again, that generation simply transferred its own unrealized aspirations to a hope for their children and grandchildren, where they could uh, savor their vindication, even if only vicariously and posthumously so. This would certainly have necessitated the preservation of language, manners, purity of faith, and forms of worship they knew in France. And this, in turn, would have explained the remarkably tenacious clinging to a confessional nonconformity, even when sp starkly confronted with the very marked advantages of conformity within the Anglican communion. Uh, and it expl helped explain high incidence the first generations of endogamy and the dogged resistance to assimilation. Now, another supposition to be exploded is that of Calvinist misogyny, that the reformed ideology, patriarchically structured, offered its female devotees little in the way of outlet. Recent research has posited contrarywise that Calvinist doctrine, in France at least, uh, in its extolling of the virtues of marriage over religious life, and through the doctrines of uh, election, predestination, and the priesthood of all believers, uh, subtly and inadvertently actuated a position of instant status 
which many Huguenot women exploited to create what one scholar is quoted as, quote, a distinctive space for themselves within the church, within the community, and within the long durée of Christian history, unquote. Calvin's doctrine implying at least uh, spiritual equality, and that's translated in the Huguenot community, uh, thus functioned as a subversive two-edged sword in the hands of such women as be who were enterprising enough to employ the avenues provided to un- undermine patriarchy by fashioning their own bailiwicks. Now, in this, in this, uh, in this paper, of course, I apologize. I have to keep one foot. In the nature of it, I have to keep one foot in France and one foot in Ireland. Uh, for Huguenots living in 17th century France, family was at the same instance a source of strength and an Achilles heel. Family could and did provide the cohesiveness to endure adversity, ranging from harassment to outright persecution to even exile. And family life was one of the buttressing elements of their faith. But at the same time, family ties opened the gates to greater vulnerability to be classically exploited by oppressive authority. Uh, From the time of Cardinal Mazarin's death in 1661 and King Louis XIV's assumption of personal power, the sea change made itself felt in regard to policy of the French monarchy as employed vis-a-vis its Calvinist minority, though not its underlying attitude. For King Louis, the Huguenots as a legal authority had no place in this ultra-centralized, well-controlled states, though their physical presence as royal subject would be maintained and even enforced. Nonetheless, their uh, distinctive religious identity was to be taken from them. From 1676 to 1681, this was attempted through something called the Caisse de Conversion, Conversion Fund, administered by an official named Paul Pellisson. The revenue from vacated abbeys was to be collected by crown agents and placed into this fund, which then would be used to secure conversion through generous monetary payments, bribes. Uh, Progress was slow, and by the 1680s, even Pellisson admitted that the rate of conversion so far, it would take 900 years before the Protestant population of France was thus obliterated. In 1681, René de Marillac, royal intendant of the province of uh, Poitou, suggested to the war minister, the Marquis de Louvois, the mandatory billeting of squadrons of dragoons on the Huguenot population as a means of eliciting conversions. Dragonades, the term implied to this policy, had enjoyed prior success in enforcing the royal will and Huguenots in Chablais in 1615, Aubernat in 1627, and Montauban in 1660, and in 1670s had been used on Breton peasants and Recalce and Ultramontis in uh, the Diocese of Pamiers near Toulouse. Uh, with Louvois' vaguely committal nod and an even more ambiguous assent from King Louis, just to cover themselves, Marillac ordered massive quartering of troops from May to August 1681. The Dragonade was notable for specifically targeting women and children for abuse, employing a strategy of striking the male heads of families through the loved ones under his protection. The Dragoons, who already had a reputation as being among the roughest and least disciplined units of the French army were under orders to behave uh, at the utmost brutality towards their unwilling hosts. 
breaking furniture, depleting stores of food and drink, slaughtering their animals, and particularly torturing the more vulnerable family members, likely including, though this would not have been admitted to, molestation and rape. For the male head of household who was charged with the protection of women and children within his family and whose masculinity was thus being challenged, the only source of relief was to sign a document of abjuration of faith and becoming, in parlance of the time, a nouveau converti, new, con- new convert. Uh, in terms of paperwork conversions, lip service, the Dragonade was deemed a success by the king, and he dropped the method of bribery and cajolery in favor of a campaign of coercion and terror, and thus culminated uh, the legal extinction of French Calvinism through the Edict of Fontainebleau. The policy appeared to have paid dividends, but it triggered a mass exodus from France. In Ireland, this had an immediate effect. The backlash from the Dragonade pumped new life into small pre-existing Huguenot communities, which were uh, foundering on the edge of distinction. This early Ormondite Huguenot influx in initiated in 1662 by the first Duke of Ormond. Uh, Huguenot communities were set up in Dublin, Waterford, Chapelizard, Clonmel, Carrick-on-Shore, and more doubtfully, uh, Enniscorthy. Uh, they'd largely dissipated by 1669, but in 1681, in Ireland as in Britain, the influence of French Protestants was so sudden and intense that the word refugee was first coined to describe this phenomenon. The impact is most traceable in Dublin, where by the end of 1681, the population had doubled to 50, from 50 to slightly over 100. 1662 had reached 240, uh, and by uh, uh, 1684, 430. Uh, There's another set of data reflecting that these numbers may be underestimations even, uh, and that is the... uh, application to, uh, uh, for freedman status. During the entire 18-year period from 1662 to 1680, only 21 Huguenots are reported to have applied, while in 1681 alone, 34 did so, uh, even more, 50, 55 in 1682, and all told, 148 from 1681 to 1687. Uh, the, of these later Ormondite uh, immigrants, as I termed them, uh, most arrived in family units, and they're significant in that they're numerous enough to have weathered the traumatic events uh, of 1687 to 1691 to have coalesced into an enduring nucleus into which the most substantial wave of Huguenot immigrants merged between 1692 and 1708 in the wake of the Williamite reduction of Ireland. Some 21 to 28 probable French Protestant uh, concentration waxed and waned fluidly, and refugee families like the Champagnes were compelled, often with great reluctance, to put down roots. A severe complicating factor is the splitting of families and the frenetic attempts to reunite and patch them back together in exile. In many cases, it would take months or years. In some cases, this was only partially fulfilled. It might entail several very hazardous clandestine return journeys in order to spirit out family members left behind. 
Marie de Champagnier felt compelled to leave her youngest child, two-months-old Therese, behind and never saw her again, a factor which helped open bitter permanent rift between the mother and her eldest daughter, Suzanne. Huguenot parents in exile were, of course, adamant that the faith, the culture be preserved uh, within the solidarity of the family unit uh, and transmitted to the next generation uh, and devised many means to do this. Chief among them, uh, the uh, methods devised and employed to safeguard the moral and cultural authority of the French Protestant communities were the ceremonies was the ceremony of reconnaissance. Along with the kindred ceremonies of abjuration and reception, these became part and parcel of French Reformed worship in exile. Now, Huguenot services, to tell you, uh, conducted entirely in French, would begin with psalm singing, without musical accompaniment. Then there would be prayers, then scriptural reasoning, and then the pastor's sermon which would last at least one hour and up to two and maybe more. It was considered the most important part of the uh, of service. Then there would be communion. And finally, the reconnaissances, abjurations, and receptions. Now, a reconnaissance was designed as the culmination of a reconciliation and reunification process whereby a Huguenot who had lapsed in their faith under pressure of persecution publicly acknowledged their transgression. From the time of the Dragonides on, many of them had become new converts, and now that they'd made their escape, uh, they needed to cleanse their soul of the, of the taint of shame so they could join the saints, join the elect. Uh, as refugees poured into centers like Dublin, London, Cork, Waterford, etc., it was necessary to provide this mechanism uh, a mechanism which, by which individuals could purge themselves of their sins before God and the congregation and be publicly readmitted into fellowship. It was a process that could take place from between three weeks to as many as much as six months and entailed putting oneself under the minister's tutelage. The minister would then question the candidates as to the precise nature of their lapse and subsequent escape, provide admonitory religious instruction, and then, when all the evidence was weighed, the candidate would come forward uh, and present a detailed account to the assembly, encompassing uh, an account with the details of their escape and express repentance, and hopefully, almost all the time, being uh, voted back into the flock. Uh, we're fortunate to have a very extensive list of reconnaissance those of the Dublin Nonconformed Church at Peter Street from 1716 to 1730, which barely escaped destruction. And the women uh, definitely take the initiatives. Uh, 39 of the confessions of women as opposed to 27 men. And there are two cases where you can actually see where the exertion of spousal persuasion on the part of the women is strongly implied. <laughs> on the very same day, Suzanne Moromet, and Jeanne Chrétien made their reconnaissance, their respective husbands, Pierre and Jacques, announced their abjuration. And the abjuration is a ceremony in which those who had been born and reared in the Catholic faith announced their conversion to Protestantism. Uh, one would hope, to conclude, one would hope 
uh, at least in the future, for greater evidence of independent Huguenot women active in the commercial life of their adopted country and evincing the same proportionate initiative and entrepreneurial risk-taking as their fabled menfolk. I mean, it was... (laughs) It was uh, kind of proverbial, proverbial, uh, the proverbial Huguenot business acumen, the, uh, I don't know how true that this is, not true in all cases, the, also the proverb uh, coming into the, the uh, English language, honest as a Huguenot. But uh, uh, there are tantalizing paradigms that exist for Dublin. On Dame Street, Marie Gérard, is listed as proprietress of the Mary Shepherd Millinery Shop. Also in Dame Street, though 20 years later, 1732 to 37, Jean Atonville ran a shop called the Dove as a soap mercer. Even later on, 1750, a widow Lapierre owned and ran a grocery shop dubbed the Olive Tree on Blind Key. Marie Correge in 1755 operated the Castle Street establishment that she dubbed the Hat and Three Canisters, where very incongruously she sold both millinery goods and snuff. Uh, Marguerite Iris owned a grocery store called the Goat on Thomas Street, and in 1734 we find the owner and manager Penelope Lemaitre on Skinner's Row in charge of the Dove and Dial where she peddled and repaired clocks and watches. Most intriguing, though, is an enterprising lady named Lucie Perrier, who in 1753 was apparently prospering as the proprietor, sole proprietress and manager of that most popular of Irish business endeavors, a pub and hostelry, uh, specifically the Two Friends Tavern on Checkered Lane. Now, in, in conclusion of conclusion, uh, <laughs> though slightly uh, adrift of the specific focus, we must likewise... Uh, get the idea that uh, the French variety of Calvinism is very different from the British and uh, Scottish Presbyterianism and from the New England model. It's much more fluid, much more uh, kind of, much more French. (laughs) Speaking of someone who's half French anyway. uh, It's uh, the myth of the dour Calvinist Huguenots can be exploded, at least from the capitalistic and hospitality industry vantage point. During 45 years spanning 1708 to 1757, no less than 39 taverns, inns, breweries, hostelries, including that of Lucy Perrier, are found to be under Huguenot proprietorship. Uh, They include uh, the Red Cow, the Lamb and Phoenix, the Three Dogs Head, and two King's Heads, which puts me in mind of the King's Heads here which I uh, propose to be in attendance at shortly. (laughs) And hopefully some of you will join me. Uh, But uh, this all indicates probably that the universal language of conviviality sometimes transcended strict dogmatism. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 180 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website 
at tutorstuartarnon.com.